Welcome to the Birthing Instincts Podcast. I'm Dr. Stuart Fishbein, community-based practicing obstetrician and longtime advocate for birth choices. And I'm Bliss Young, a licensed midwife. Join us in our conversational style podcast where we talk about everything birth. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, but we're happy that you're here. So here we go. Good morning. Good morning in reverse. Um, yeah, uh, for you that are joining us on uh, the podcast or seeing us on Patreon, um, we have a wonderful guest today and she was on call at the hospital. So um, we decided to interview her first and then jump into our intros. So tell Stu, tell them just a little bit about who we're going to be talking to and what the what the. Well, we're talking to a uh, napro surgeon and uh, <laughs> and uh, restorative reproductive medicine doctor, um, Naomi Whitaker, who is a uh, board certified OBGYN, and she's in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And it's really an interesting conversation because she, her journey to why she did that was was why she went that way is very interesting how she how how that started. And I always love a story where where somebody who's an OBGYN, first of all, just to talk to one, but secondly, to uh, uh, find one that took a different path and is really doing some really good work for women that have ovulatory and fertility issues. Uh, and she's full service because not only does she um, help women with their fertility and with their cycles, but she also delivers babies as well. So that's kind of a cool thing. Cool. Uh, so that that's that. Um, before I have a few things, obviously, on my list, I want to, to ask you how you're doing and what are you uh, up to in the last couple of days? Oh, boy. I think <laughs> I've been telling you guys that I had babies coming and they are coming. So um, I am going to, uh, to um, pivot on what we were going to talk about on Patreon. And um, what I would like to do is talk about the birth story from um, uh, the mom who was in labor for three days with a posterior baby. We ended up transporting for mech and that baby is now um, in the NICU. So um, I think I would like to to de debrief with you in, in our private community um, about that. And oh. Yeah. All right. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm feeling a little emotional about that. Um, and then I was trying to get rest. Um, and, uh, so we were, it was three days, Friday morning at 5 AM and, and the baby, um, was delivered at, um, sometime in the evening on Sunday night. Um, and so the following day <clears throat> I had a full day and then um, was trying to get some rest just because I knew that at some point some babies were coming and I had a mom who leans a little on the anxious side and I was sending her for a um, induction massage um, because she really didn't want to go into the hospital for an induction. Um, and she asked me if I could sweep her because that masseuse thought that it's more effective if you do a sweep and uh, a massage. So I went and did a sweep for her in the evening. And, um, she was, it was so effective that she wasn't even able to get her massage. She had to get picked up by her husband. <laughs> and, um, as a first time mom, she ended up having her baby six hours later. So, um, I was not able to sleep and I was at another birth, 
which was beautiful. She had a beautiful water birth. She did absolutely amazing. And I prayed, prayed, prayed to God that we were going to have a really easy butter birth. And we did. Um, there were absolutely no complications. It was just awesome. Um, and then last night, another mom's water broke. So today I have another mom in labor. Her doula is with her now. And um, I am juggling a lot of things and I'm going to be out of birth in a little bit. So I think once we're done recording, I'm going to get myself centered and clear my mind and my spirit, as I've talked about so many times on the podcast, so that I can go and be fully present for this mom who is going to welcome her beautiful baby girl Earthside pretty soon. Well, that's a run of emotions in 24 hours. And that's sort of why we say at the beginning of the podcast, sometimes we laugh and sometimes we cry (laughs) because we do. Um, Well, I hope that one goes really well. And I hope you have a great day. I uh, just have a couple of things that I want to catch up on. Uh, I had got two direct messages that I thought I'd bring bring to everybody's attention. One uh, was an update on the billboards in Tampa and why they're all lawyers. Okay. That was pretty funny. (laughs) See, we have to laugh too, okay? Yes. Um, RE, all the bill, this is from uh, Letty on Instagram. All, All the attorney billboards in Tampa, it's because of the personal injury slash car insurance requirements and regulations in Florida. Laugh out loud. There's zero option to opt out of car insurance and personal injury protection, but it's extremely difficult to get insurance companies to actually pay when you're injured in an accident. So it's a pretty lucrative focus for attorneys, obviously. Mm. Okay. <laughs> so that doesn't really explain why the laws are stupid like that and why if they have to pay, if you have to have insurance uh, coverage, then why why is the insurance companies, well, that's a dumb question. Why are they resisting paying? I guess that's the that's, that's a good, what they that's, do. <laughs> that's a business model, right? Um, right. Another one was just a little bit of, of sort of uh, COVID lunacy. Uh, somebody wrote to me that her husband visa is expiring. They, they live in America. His visa, but he's applying for permanent residency. But in order to get permanent residency in the United States, he they won't give it to him until he gets vaccinated with the COVID vaccine. And the only thing I can think of at this time, because this is the time where we're, we're watching what's happening at the Texas border. And we're, we're watching hundreds of thousands of, of migrants come over the border with no vetting, no health history, and not being required to have a COVID vaccine to come into our country. Yet here's somebody who's been living here for years, who's applying for residency, but can't get it unless he gets the COVID vaccine. So it's just a, another... Yeah, that's, Mm -hmm. yeah, I was going to say worse things than that, but (laughs) it doesn't make, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. And I've been busy podcasting. I was on um, two that were released this week, uh, Your Birth, God's Way with Lori Morgan. um, And, uh, and another one called Fearlessly Fertile, which kind of ties in a little bit to our topic today uh, with the former, the host is a former prosecutor. I love that. And she had unsuccessful fertility treatments for years and then she conceived naturally on her own at age 43 so we talk a little bit about that but we talk about other things it's an interview that goes in a little bit of different direction than most of my interviews because it's more about fertility than it is about obstetrics and obstetric lunacy um last thing i have is i have four good breach stories uh just the question is where do they go oh here they are um just I'm gonna two of them are real quick. I was speaking to 
before you do that, can I, yeah. can I add on to something that you just yeah, said? Of course. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to also talk about that last night you and I did our very first Q and a on Patreon. Um, and who, who joined us? My brain is mush. Lori from the, your birth God's way podcast. Lori. Yeah. Morgan, right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we're just getting this thing launched, but we had an amazing conversation. I had so much fun. I can't wait till next month. And, you know, Stu and I talked about on the recording, which if you weren't there or you're not a Patreon member, you won't hear, is that we, what we really want to create is the ability to be able to feel like we're sitting together in a room sharing a, you said a whiskey or a cup of coffee um, and exchanging ideas and talking about our hardships and um, our challenges and ask questions to one another. And um, so we we kicked it off last night. It was um, it was great. And I'm really looking forward to the community building. So if you're not already on there with us, um, we would love for you to join us next month. Um, we picked a date. Do you remember? It was the four weeks from now, February 27th. I, yeah, we'll I think we'll so. let I you know. Yes, I think that was Stay the date, tuned. but it'll be it'll be posted all over the place. Yeah. And what tuned. we did is we, you know, some people had written in with questions and we went over their questions and it was something I loved because I didn't have to prep for it. Yeah. No, it's easy for us to just right. chat. Yeah. You know, the podcast um, the and stuff, thing, I do a lot of prep for that. So. Yeah, I know. You're awesome. Such a good partner. <laughs> um, I um, The other thing is, since we're talking about podcasts that we recorded, I actually finally recorded with Nathan Riley. We've been trying literally for two years. We actually recorded one about two years ago that the quality wasn't good because I was on the road in my RV. And so we finally got it rescheduled and we had a really talk about going in a different direction. We talked a lot about um, loss and death and spiritual components of that and how birth and death are connected. And it was um, really wonderful. So I will give you guys a shout out when that finally comes out. But um, I'm looking forward to you guys hearing us chat about all of that. Okay. So just some some good news. Um, I'll try to do this as quick as possible. Uh, I, I spoke to a group of women, uh, a, a birth worker and a family that live in Belgium. And they have a breech baby and they called just for confidence. They just wanted to know some issues. And they're, they're driving across the border into Herlen, the Netherlands, H-E-E-R-L-E-N is the name of the town. And there they have a hospital there where they have a, a whole group of, of doctors who do breech delivery in the hospital. So that's a I good, love that. that's a, that's a step in the right direction. Yeah. Then I got a, then I got a message from somebody else who's going to have a breech delivery um, in, in Massachusetts. And there's a Dr. Hardiman at Auburn hospital in Cambridge, Massachusetts that does breach delivery. And I was, did a, I did a podcast with Bill Chun from doc, doc and doula. Uh, some of you may know him from Instagram. We just had a conversation and that that'll come out shortly. But what's funny is he's in that area and he, he independently started raving about Auburn hospital as the only hospital in the area that has like a C-section rate in the 20, 20 percentiles and that places where you can go. So it's an Island in, in a, you know, it's an oasis in a desert is what I meant to say. Um, so that's just options. And what I like to do is put out these options out there. I know that breach without borders has a uh, practitioner list for, for people. I was going to do it, but since breach without borders already did it, uh, it seems silly for me to be redundant. Okay. Two, the wheel. <laughs> yeah. Two other, mm -hmm. yeah, that's a better way of saying it. Two other quick <laughs> stories. Um, this is from Verity on Instagram. 
She says, I had my twins this week, both breach and in a hospital. Three exclamation part points. <laughs> Yay. Congratulations. Uh, home birth was the plan, but they came at 35 weeks. And my provider was amazing. And listening to your podcast gave me so much confidence. I'm in Elgin, Illinois at Advocate Sherman Hospital. And my provider is Dr. Michael Rearmeyer. When I consulted with him about 25 weeks, he told me he didn't care what position the twins were in as long as nobody sticks an arm out. Oh, <laughs> we just released our additional content today with a transverse baby where the arm came out at home. So that's, that's funny. Yeah. Is that our, is that on our Patreon? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And so I, I'm so thankful to him. My twin A was born Frank Breach in the call and my twin B started out transverse, but turned and was born a true footling breach. And that's really possible with second twins. We talk about that. Mm -hmm. There was an hour between them and they have different birthdays. <laughs> And Dr. Mike and Dr. Mike was very patient and hands off. For a doctor to be in the hospital to deliver a breech first twin, wait an hour between the second twins, keep his hands off. This guy nominated for Nobel Nobel Prize. This guy gets <laughs> my gets the gets the birthing instincts prize. I know we need to create a prize. Yeah, <laughs> that, I mean that's that. amazing. That's amazing. And then one more. Um, this is from Kim on. Uh, who wrote to us on our email bliss. You probably saw this one. Uh, this is a singleton breach story. Hi, Dr. Stu and goddess bliss. I just wanted to send a note of gratitude to you both in August as a first time mom, I had the most beautiful and perfect breach home birth. While there were a lot of factors that made this possible for me. I wanted to let you know that you and your podcast played a major part. When I found out I was pregnant, I knew I wanted a home birth, but still had a lot of learning to do. I settled on a search to educate myself on physiologic birth as much as possible. Your podcast quickly became the favorite in my rotation due to the variety of topics and your straightforward, no-nonsense explanations. Speaking of that, listen, I just found out yesterday that we're in the top 0.5% of podcasts according to this thing that surveys them. So I looked through it, and it's, actually there's like over 3 million-something podcasts on it. So that means we're in the top 16,000. <laughs> so what's really interesting about that, though, is the difference between relative risk and actual risk or relative numbers and actual numbers. 0 0.5, being the top 0 0.5 doesn't mean a lot if you don't know what the denominator is. And this is something that we talk about all the time. So Because you were all excited. And then, I was like, we're in the top 1%. We definitely need to be making more money. <laughs> yeah, well, the top 1% is 32,000 podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't matter because we love being with you and we love um, being able to give out this information and it's so great when we get letters like this that talks about you know the difference that we're making it really really warms our hearts little did i know when i started this journey how relevant your podcast and all the breach content would be come to me i found out when i was around 32 weeks that my baby was breached without your podcast i would have been very ignorant to breach birth up to that point no one thinks they'll be the three to four percent. Mm -hmm. I would have then panicked and uh, panicked and Googled and had just a few short weeks to attempt to locate evidence-based information and research on breech birth and decide how to move forward after my ECV ultimately failed at 39 weeks. Instead, I felt generally informed, prepared, confident, and equipped with resources to further research and advocate for myself and my baby as, as well as prep for breech delivery. I was extremely blessed to have two amazing midwives who were well-trained in breech birth I think this was in Kansas, but I'm not 100% certain. Both trained by you in some capacity, Dr. Stu, and who were and, and both who were supportive of my decision to proceed with my home birth. 
Uh, you may have even seen a video of my birth on Instagram. <laughs> um, luckily, I'm in a state that does allow for breach home birth, but many midwives in my area will not attend, especially a prime or a first-time mom. Having these ladies with such knowledge in my area and my corner was a huge blessing. And I'm just going to leave it at that. She didn't really want me to give out names, but <laughs> obviously if people want to write to me and you're in parts of Kansas and you need names, I'm always eager to help uh, you do that. Or you can go to the Breach Without Borders Breach Finder uh, thingamajig on their website. Okay. <laughs> thingamajig. Yeah. And while we're on the topic of breach, I wanted to um, remind everybody that um, Dr. Stu is coming to California Central Coast in Mine Hood. So we are. When is, um, that? when is that? That is May 18th and 19th. And um, we are co hosting that with um, Alexa Star Star Starling Starting, um, who is the woman who runs SYV Midwifery, San Inez Valley. Um, she's got a great facility out there. And um, so we're really excited. We, I'm really hoping that we have a good show up um, of doctors. I already have one that's local that I know is coming. Um, she, was on our podcast a few months ago, um, and we've talked about her a few times. That's um, uh, Melissa Drake, who's local, and I have a couple of others that I have my eye on. But if you are a doctor and you are listening to this and you want to come out, I'm really hoping that we have a really good ratio of midwives to doctors because I think it would make it a real vibrant um, discussion and education and ability to be able to create more community. Yeah, and uh, people can go to the events page on the birthinginstincts.com website and find out where I'm going to be all this year. And before we bring on our guest, I want to remind everybody one more thing. What am I going to remind them, Bliss? You probably remember what I'm going to remind them. <laughs> Check no? your spam folders and Check support spam our folders. sponsors. Right. <laughs> yeah, support our sponsors and check your spam folders. Because if you write to me, I will almost always write back. And sometimes I never hear back from somebody who I wrote even a a long thing or invited them into a conversation or something. And I just know it's festering somewhere in their spam folder and eventually they'll or just. Or they're busy. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It's almost always a spam folder. All right. <laughs> All right. So um, thank you for um, inviting this guest on. And um, here we go. Well, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Naomi Whitaker. Good morning, Naomi. Good morning. How are you? Afternoon over here, but great. How are you guys? Oh boy. <laughs> and I'm going to, I'm going to save that for something else. Cause we want to focus on you. I'm having a morning, but that's okay. Life oh no, on. I'm so sorry. Oh, it's okay. You know, you're in the, you're in the world. It's like a birth flurry and navigating challenges with some clients and getting ready for the next one. And you know, life, mm -hmm. it's just, that's how it is sometimes. But um, I'm happy that you're here. We've been talking about having, you and someone similar to you on as a guest talking about, um, how do you pronounce it, Stu? Napro? Napro, yeah. Napro. Um, we had, uh, we had a, a, somebody write in a few months ago, and we were both like, what's that? And we were so curious. So I think this is going to be a really great conversation. I'm glad that you were able to make it. And Stu, are you going to read her bio, or you want her to introduce yeah, no, her? No, I'm going to read her bio. Um, I, I wrote down somewhere what NAPRO stands for, but I can't find it. <laughs> so what is this? NAPRO technology is uh, natural procreative technology. There you go. I wrote it down. It's in here someplace. Couldn't find it. Um, <laughs> it's an interesting question when you ask somebody how they're doing, because most people do it 
not really expecting a long answer. Everybody just wants to hear fine, fine, right, fine. But if you really ask the question, then you should expect yeah. any, anything to come at you. Okay. Um, Especially from me. <laughs> let's nor- let's, yeah, we should normalize that. The real answer. I, yeah. am so, I am so excited to have you on because for many reasons. One, it's rare that I get to talk to an OBGYN. That's the first mm-hmm. thing. Especially one that kind of cha- took a different path, which is even more exciting for me. And two, because we get questions all the time about NAPRO technology. And, and, and I have never heard of it until the last year or so. Mm-hmm. So I want to know why, and we'll get to that in a second, but I want to introduce you first. So Dr. Naomi Whitaker is the founder of the Restorative Reproductive Medicine Academy or rrmacademy.org and an OBGYN fertility surgeon focused on re- women's restorative reproductive medicine, compassionate healthcare, and education. Boy, does that sound good. Dr. Whitaker is a board certified OBGYN and a fellow and, and a fellowship trained surgeon who specializes in the Creighton model fertility care system and NAPRO technology, which works cooperatively with a woman's body to treat the underlying cause of gynecologic Ill- issues and infertility, such as endometriosis and PCOS or polycystic ovarian syndrome. Dr. Whitaker helps women improve their gynecologic health and avoid achieve pregnancy in accordance with their natural fertility using the latest research, medicine, and surgery. Dr. Whitaker earned her medical degree at Creighton University School of Medicine and completed her residency in OBGYN at OSF Hospital in Peoria, Illinois. She then completed the St. John Paul II Fellowship in Medical and Surgical NAPRO Technology at the Pope Paul VI. Oh, there's a lot of letters and numbers in there. I know. Sorry about that. Pope Paul VI Institute in Omaha, Nebraska. She also received the Focus Practice designation in Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery by the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. I didn't know there was such a thing. Dr. Whitaker is currently practicing in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Wow. So can we call you Naomi? Yes. Okay, good. Bliss. You can call me Bliss. (laughs) Okay, great. (laughs) That is Bliss, actually. but No, no, you can just call me Bliss. Are are you someone who listens to the podcast? Are you new to us? Just just to kind of get it. Yeah, I have not listened to the podcast. Um, okay, good. I went to the Breach Without Borders training, though, while in Pennsylvania. Awesome. I don't know if Stu remembers, but I met him. Do you remember that? Where? Stu? <laughs> uh, outside, I don't know where, I don't know what town it was in, but near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Uh, when was it? About a year and a half ago. Oh, no, more than that, two and a half, because I was in my second trimester first or second trimester with my two-year-old. So whenever you were here in Pennsylvania doing a breach without borders training. Well, I, I, again, you looked I, at me like I had three eyes because I was an OBGYN. Well, here's the, here's uh, the deal. I don't remember being in Pennsylvania. No? So it's, it's an odd, it's an odd thing, but we, <laughs> you, you look familiar, but I've seen your picture a bunch on Instagram. Uh, no, I wouldn't remember that, but that's not a down. That's not uh, you. negative on me. It's just yeah, you just you just looked at me like, oh wow, you're an OBGYN. Hi. We love that. We love that. Yeah, we're well, glad that you were there. Yeah, we will we love that you were there because you know it OBGYNs attend these things, less than probably five percent of the attendees are ever MDs or maternal fetal medicine doctors. They're almost all midwives. Even doulas and other birth workers want to know these things because they know they'll ought to be a birth sometime and they want to know how to counsel um their clients as to what happens right. when their clients breach. 
So they're curious, but most of our profession is very curious. But that's not why you're here. Okay. Right. But that's how I know you is from that course. I took the whole course and I really learned a lot and wish I had been given that information in my residency training. Well, you got a glowing uh, recommendation from a uh, mutual uh, Instagram fellow traveler, Stephanie Kay. She recommended you. I don't want to say her last name, but she recommended you as well. And so I reached out to you and you came on and I, you know, I, let's just start at the beginning. All right. Let's start at your journey before we get into NAPRO stuff, because it's really, I'm really interested to see the journey of a person who takes a slightly different path. So tell us about how you became into, you know, your history going in, why, why OBGYN, what happened, why you didn't take the normal path, why you changed. What, tell us that story. Sure. Well, my parents are political refugees. Uh, when I was a child, they always told me, reach for the for the stars. Do You can do anything. And so I wanted to be a physician because I thought that was the most impactful profession to heal both the mind and, and body. Um, and just the importance of that with affecting the family unit. So I went to medical school, not knowing what I was getting myself into, really. And I... Ironically, my first year of medical school, I said, the one thing I don't want to do is OBGYN because I thought it was just, I don't know, pap smears and STDs. So um, I was going, my husband went to Afghanistan and um, I learned about uh, natural family planning on my own at Creighton. They have a whole uh, program there, training program of the Creighton model system and uh Napper technology is there. So while he was deployed, I uh, was investigating these these uh, alternative approaches of um, family planning on my own, um, out of my own interest and you know personal journey. Uh, we ended up um, having our first while I was in medical school. I was the one pregnant uh, person in my class, the first one. And yeah, that was quite a story for another day, but how medical students reacted to that, um, the comments that they said. But anyway, wait, wait, I wait, wait, up... wait, 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 wait. <laughs> I can tell you right now, our audience wants to know what they, what oh, the do they? okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't worry about it. You oh can actually, gosh. you can, you can swear on the podcast. You can, <laughs> you can call out people on the podcast. Yeah. That sort of thing. We, we sort of relish that, that behavior. Yeah. I mean, so is at the end of my first year, um, right before I was going to take my step one, the hardest test we have in our whole medical career. And uh, one uh, med student said, what if your water breaks during the exam? You know, and I'm already like, really? Did you really have to add that to the stress? And, you know, everyone just looked at me like, are you crazy to have a kid right now? And I just didn't really feel the support. Then I ended up having, um, you know, what I think was an avoidable C-section. Uh, and um, it was a very stressful experience, um, you know, very high intervention, of course. Uh, you know, I was four, over 41 weeks, was induced. Uh, I think that was fine until um, Monday morning. I was one centimeter. He A-ROMed me. I immediately got an epidural. You know, I didn't know any, I didn't know anything about birth. I didn't know. I got it. I had a doula, but I didn't have any money. So I got a doula student who was a nurse student. So she didn't really know anything. 
and um, and we're at a big, big hospital, probably twenty labor and delivery beds, and um, you know, they, I don't remember them turning me or really being in the room very much. Uh, you know, I definitely felt like a number, and had some D cells from what I remember, and I got to nine at 8 p.m. He's like, it's time for a C-section. And I didn't even know, like, he didn't warn me. He wasn't saying, oh, it's not looking good an hour or two before. I would have liked a little heads up, but he's like, no, we got to, we're going. There was not an emergency, but he was just done. And my grandmother died he, from a C-section. He was done. Yeah, he was he done. Was done. I mean, right. I, you know, I had this feeling, bad feeling about it, about my care by him in my last two weeks before, but I was, too young naive to know what to do i was too scared um to change providers i didn't know what to do i didn't know where to go what to do um so i had already my that mutual that trust relationship was already compromised and so here i am tied to the bed with an epidural which is fine if you trust somebody (laughs) but if you're questioning this does he have my best interest in mind you know, when you're stuck there on the bed and then your grandmother died from a C-section, that's all, you know, you know, that was pretty terrifying. Um, But what, what choice did I have, but to say, yes, I didn't know what else to do. So I had a C-section, had some fevers post-operatively. He, um, he didn't know what, what it was. He, he kept brushing it off it's your milk coming in. And I'm like, again, something's not right. It was atelectasis. I had a lot of post-op pain. It was a really difficult recovery. Um, a few other, you know, lots of hurdles with nursing and studying and narcotics and, you know, to try to manage any pain. Cause I got so behind on the pain and kept having more and more issues. It was one of those things. So it was a really hard recovery. And then on top of that, I had my step one and five weeks or so after and my uh, my classmates would come visit and they would just be like, oh, wow, I can't believe you're doing this. If you can do this, I can do it. You know, kind of comments. Um, I wouldn't say it felt. Can I, can I chime in here for a second? Yeah. Just, just a couple of things. First of all, I just want to tell listeners that atelectasis is just where you're not breathing deep enough and the bottom of your lungs just sort of don't expand. You get fluid in there and it sometimes causes a fever. It's not really an infection. You just have to take deep breaths. That's why you have that little device. Sometimes you blow into it or you suck into at the hospital. Secondly, I just want to say one thing when you talked about how the, um, the medical students were like, you know, flabbergasted that you were doing this at the time. And they said these comments to you, it's sort of a, a warning sign that these people are your future doctors. And these people, even at that young age, before they've been indoctrinated are somehow lacking empathy for a woman and saying things that they're not supportive of a pregnant woman and they're going into med and they're in medical school. It's just, it's just says something to me. Well, it's never thought about it like that. Yeah. It's not (laughs) modeled during that time. So I think that you don't, you don't learn that kind of care unless you see someone modeling it for you when you're, Mm. when, you know, in the medical system, I think a lot, I mean, I wasn't trained as a doctor, but just from being on the outside, I believe that you guys, are trained in certain instances, maybe not specifically OBGYN, but medicine 
to have a certain separation from people. Maybe that's to protect yourself from hardships, but also it's just kind of how it is. And with midwifery, we're taught to lean in and the complete opposite. So I had that modeled for me. I saw many, Mm -hmm. many midwives modeling how to be empathetic and how to work through hard things. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have known how to do that either. Well, here's the thing. I'm not even talking about these are first year medical students. They haven't been uh, altered yet. <laughs> I'm talking about how about when they're five years old or 11 years old of having empathy and, mm-hmm. and being taught that in their families. Right. Something's, something is missing mm-hmm. when I hear a story like that. Yeah, I hear that. And what but, I what I notice, Naomi, is birth trauma. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, you know, like as a professional in this in this space, you know, people have gone through so much worse. So it's hard for me to say something like that, but it it was a very hard experience for me that really impacted, you know, everything going forward. Yeah, yeah. And then you okay. also said, and then and you also said part of your story. Maybe I'm I want to direct you a little bit. You said I saw residents scoff at a woman experiencing a miscarriage just weeks after my delivery. Yeah. So yeah, actually, yeah, I was my second. So technically step one is after, sorry, my second year of medical school. So right after you take step one, the written boards, you are thrown into your first clinical experience. So pretty soon after I delivered, I then was on the other side of the table as a medical provider per se, as a medical student. So one of my first experiences was shadowing residents. We went into the residency clinic the resident broke the bad news that this lady had uh, lost the baby. They were doing an ultrasound. They said, there's no heartbeat. And she, of course, broke down. And then we went into the hallway and debriefed. And they belittled her experience saying, oh, she was only 11 weeks. Oh, and she wasn't taking her blood pressure medications. And, you know, in that moment, I was like, wow, like, that's me. You know, I was that patient. Or I was also, you know, in a C-section, same thing. That, you know, wow, this, you know, I identified very closely with these patients being just had been there on the other side. Yeah. So continue to tell us how you got to be where you are today. Obviously, that's a big part of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, I mean, part of it was seeing how a lack of empathy, uh, made my situation much more difficult. If I had trusted my provider, if I had felt that he was compassionate and was was giving me his best, you know, was giving me the best treatment for me and my baby, I would have experienced that whole birth experience much differently. Yeah. If, you know, uh, then I also saw in other rooms, you know, everyone was getting basically the same, you know, do you want a IUD, B birth control, or C sterilization. You know, and every room was basically the same thing. And and I thought, wow, that's that's all women get. You know, that's about it. Yeah, you know, um, so I didn't think that was very intriguing healthcare. It didn't sound very interesting to me. Um, but then there were NAPRO providers uh, that I got to see a contrast to. Um, a few weeks later. So it was very black and white to me, the two different approaches. And so when I saw these providers, um, they had scientific curiosity. They had a lot of compassion. Um, They were really looking at 
what was going on. I loved how they were really piecing out the pieces of a puzzle. I really like figuring things out, like the endocrine side of things. Um, and their surgical skill was impressive and just really finding all these answers and, and truly finding healing. And I thought it was really neat to give something different, to even offer something unique. I didn't want to go into internal medicine and just treat pneumonia the same way or asthma, the same algorithm. I wanted to be able to do the art of women's health and give um, this beautiful alternative for women who are seeking more and just to be able to give another option just to really make a difference. And, you know, my faith definitely had a big part of all this as well. Um, so that all was a big part of it. Um, I felt like it was a, a calling for me as well. So were you exposed to this simply because Creighton University was a center for NAPRO technology? Yeah. So that's a, that's a, that's one of those uh, sliding door lucky moments in yes. life. Yeah, it is. Because if you'd been at most other medical schools, you, you would never, you would have been like me. You would never even heard of NAPRO technology. Right. Right. So that, so that's great. And, and um, I love the fact that, that what you, you described is essentially the opposite of way, the way the medical industrial complex takes care of things. They, they, they treat symptoms. They don't treat underlying causes. It's just easier. It's easier to write a prescription than it is to spend an hour talking to somebody about diet and lifestyle and toxins and other things like that. So this is a big problem. So I love the I love the fact that 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 inspired you, and you saw that. And maybe part of the reason you saw that so brightly was because of the contrast of the way that you had been treated. Yeah, it I, all was interesting timing. That's for sure. That absolutely <laughs> played a role. Um. I see a cross behind you. Are you a woman of faith? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's a big part of, of NAPRO as well and the background of how it was developed. And um, this approach really uh, fell in line with, with my faith as well. So that was very, very nice as well. Perfect. Yeah. Um, I know we have so much to talk about, about your practice now and, and, and NAPRO in general, but I just wanted to also kind of underline as you were telling your story and we wove in, your family history and how that influenced how you were feeling about this birth and the tr birth trauma that you experienced. Um, you know, a lot of times as a provider, when I have someone who has some kind of experience that is feeling very challenging and is not at all what they expected. Um, I talk about like, we have no idea how this moment in time is going to influence your path. I too have had not, I did, I don't think that I necessarily felt traumatized, but my first birth experience, I was also had a lot of interventions after transporting to the hospital. And I think that that was one of the reasons why I chose this path and it took me 20 years. So, you know, it wasn't mm -hmm. like immediate. So I think that, um, life does guide us in that way. If we're open to looking at it and in the moment they, it feels like, why is this happening to me? This is really, really hard. But in the long, the long run, those experiences end up making us a better provider and to have more compassion and understanding. And I don't think I would have had the same understanding of a woman's experience if I hadn't gone through that. So I just, I'm noticing that in you telling this story too. And I think that's important for people who are our, our fellow travelers who are listening to understand too that birth is unpredictable and we don't always know and that 
as we move forward, it could really influence how we're caring for other people in our lives. Absolutely. Yeah. So you All said, right. oh, yeah, so you, yeah. So let's move on because now uh-huh. I want to, so you said that uh, the Creighton model system you learned at Creighton university and it's, is that essentially uh, a variation on natural family planning? Is it natural family planning? What, what is the Creighton model? Yeah, I mean, that's one function of it. So the Creighton model system is a scientifically backed uh, way of teaching a woman about her menstrual cycle, the physiology of it, and then biomarkers that she needs to identify to be able to identify her fertile window, for example. Um, She is taught how to objectively quantify cervical mucus, blood loss, and be able to write these down in a prospective manner. And so we're able to um, look at this data that a woman identifies, and we can use that information to help her with medical issues to do testing, but she can use it on her own for avoiding or achieving pregnancy. And so it's really helpful for women with subfertility even they have the information that they need to be able to improve their pregnancy rates just by identifying the most fertile day of the whole cycle, for example. But it can be used to uh, very accurately avoid pregnancy, space pregnancy for breastfeeding, for example, and identify biomarkers that are not normal. So it taught me what is normal because that's another problem in medical school. We're not taught what is normal, what is healthy, what is optimal. And so that way we do know, like I was trained, how to teach the system, how to interpret it, and how to use it to run tests and treatment. Shouldn't this be so done I, in high school? <laughs> can it be done what, Stu? Shouldn't it be done in high school? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But it's not. Um, so you're that's the number one so- thing I hear from women is why wasn't I taught this sooner? I and mean, this is what I I'm asking this. This has been happening my whole life. Why didn't I know this stuff? And I've been around for a really long time. Yeah, it's amazing. Bliss, what is Element? L M N T. It's an amazing sponsor. First of all, we love them so much, but it's a tasty electrolyte drink with all of the good stuff and none of the BS, like us. That's right. (laughs) I taught you well. (laughs) <laughs> it is. It, it's got a lot of uh, good salts in it and uh, no sugar. I even uh, took a little notes here and they have a um, thousand milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium and 60 milligrams of magnesium, which helps maintain fluid balance, regulates your blood pressure and supports muscle function, mood and bone health. Which is great for pregnant mamas, breastfeeding moms, and absolutely for birth workers. So make sure that you have some in your in your birth bag if you need it or if your clients do in labor. For sure. Electrolyte deficiency or imbalances can cause like headache, cramps, fatigue, and weakness, especially in the birthing world. You know, a long time when we, before what I used to do it, but you still do. (laughs) You have a lot (laughs) of sleep after being up all night and snacking on like not such good food sometimes. And I carry it with me whenever I travel and I add it to my water, like in the hotel room and stuff. And I spent a lot of time recently in hotel rooms. It's a great sponsor and they've, They've been doing really well, and I'm really proud to be um, supporting them. They have multiple flavors. Your uh, favorite is raspberry, right? Raspberry is mine, and yours is mango chili. Yeah. But I, I do have I do have some sad news. Aww. 
So long, old friend, to Lemon Habanero. Oh, man. They discontinued it? So they could concentrate on citrus salt, raspberry salt, orange salt, raw unflavored, mango chili, chocolate salt, and watermelon salt. Maybe they're going to come out with some new stuff, too. But I trust <laughs> Elements. I trust that uh, they've done a deep dive into the research. They put their whole soul into it. We would like you to go to Drink Element. That's drinklmnt.com backslash birthing instincts, all one word. And when you do that, you'll get a free sample pack with your every order. Go do it. Go do it. So you're using some terms that I think would be really nice if we broke them down a little bit more for people. Um, so like objectively quantify and biomarkers. Yeah, yeah if you could kind of like yeah. make that a little bit more of, of layman terms, I exactly. think that would be helpful. Yeah, I mean, you know, one misconception is natural family planning is a rhythm method it's the old that's old that's antiquated maybe back in the 40s um that's all they had but now we don't want to use the calendar method we know that women don't always ovulate on cycle day 14 right so uh what's the most critical uh component of the whole menstrual cycle that's ovulation so we need to know or empower women to know when they ovulate and your body will release cervical mucus to be able to show that the hormones are rising and that uh, that ovulation is coming. And so the, that's called a biomarker. That means an observation that you can make yourself to be able to identify what's going on inside the body. And so a woman has a lot of biomarkers, which is really what's really intriguing about woman's fertility is that uh, she does have it's they're more women are more complicated but we have a lot of data to use to understand what's going on so those are the biomarkers the clues that our body is giving us or actually more than clues actual data our body provides for us if we're taught how to interpret that and so I recommend to be able to use this system effectively or any natural family planning or fertility awareness based method Correctly, you need a certified instructor to teach scientific, accurate observations. Um, and with the Creighton model, it's a little more scientific because of these objective standardization ways that we, we teach, uh, you know, those who are using it, we teach them um, how to describe things. So if you have stretchy, clear, it's 10K mucus is how you and so what is important about that it's important because we can use that objective data to make calculations to know when there's too little mucus or it's abnormal um, for example or we can use that for research to see that we see decreased cervical mucus with women with endometriosis for example and so we also can use it during treatment we can use that data to say oh you use this mucus enhancer and it helped increase your cervical mucus. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. But that's, that, that's obviously that's one biomarker. You said there are, there are many biomarkers. Now, cervical mucus is something that, that even those of us who didn't know anything about NAPRO knew about fertility and looking for the stretchy mucus. I think there's a German word for it called spinbarkite or something like that. Yes. But, yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. An so, elevated temperature, right? Are there other changes in the body, um, breast changes that they can recognize, um, other 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 biomarkers that, without getting too obviously 
we're not giving a lesson on how to do this at home, right, but right. But what other things besides uh, mucus can a woman do to kind of identify that she's pre-ovulatory or, or ovulatory in that window? Yeah, I mean, cervical mucus is hands down the most important by, for anything. Any, there's nothing else that compares. It is the most sci- most tested, tried and true biomarker. The thing is, you need a teacher to teach you what is mucus and what is something else, like vaginal discharge. Um, is something different. And so, and then, you know, are you having continuous mucus and it's the same that can happen with PCOS. So being able to work with the teacher to know, is this a healthy, you know, mucus pattern um, is really important. It's not as easy as, as you think, especially for women with irregular cycles, PCOS and, you know, endometriosis or other issues. If they don't have regular cycles, they're more likely to have or abnormal bleeding often goes with a low cervical mucus as well. So an- the next important biomarker would be the bleeding pattern that we look for. So things like tail and brown bleeding is abnormal. Premenstrual spotting of three days or more is abnormal. What was the first thing? Was, your, what, what was the first right. kind of bleeding? Tail and brown bleeding. Um, okay, I'm just not hearing. Yeah, it like very espe- well. yeah, especially yeah, over three days or more or over two days really, or more, um, is abnormal of tail and brow bleeding at the end of the period. Three days or more premenstrual spotting is abnormal. And then an irregular luteal phase is abnormal or short. And when so you want to have a consistent luteal phase. And when you say it's ab- abnormal, um, what, what are the most, again, the differential diagnosis list could be really long, but what are the most common reasons that, that a woman will have this premenstrual bleeding or the spotting or this postmenstrual brown discharge that they have what yeah what those are two that? different biomarkers that mean two different things premenstrual bleeding is typically low progesterone and that will often go with a short luteal phase low progesterone that's probably the most common issue that i see um so luteal phase defect low progesterone tail and brown bleeding um is more often uh inflammation of the lining lining of the uterus because it's the lining closest to the myometrium, the line, you know, it's the deepest in, so it's going to be reflective of the health of the uterus and even the environment of the abdomen. If there's inflammation, it'll show up on the tail and brow bleeding. That's cool. And just so for our listeners go, the luteal phase, by the way, people is, is the second half of your cycle. It's after you've ovulated until you start your period. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And then the, the, um, First phase is called the proliferative phase, and that just defines the fact that the lining of the uterus is is proliferating and growing, getting ready, hopefully based on uh, rising estrogen levels, hopefully to catch a fertilized egg and be able to nurture it uh, properly. Right. I, I just don't and know. Also- we got an audience that varies from lay people all the way up to medical people, so I just want to be yeah. clear. Go ahead, Bliss. Yeah. And then also um, basal body temperature, right? Elevated. So we don't typically use that um, because that is a retrospective observation, right? That's telling you ovulation has passed usually a few days prior. So that's not going to give us much information on the fertile window. Um, So, I mean, it can confirm that the progesterone is rising um, and that the fertile window has ended. So that can be done, but that's not 
part of Creighton because we don't really need it. But yeah, some women may want to have that reassurance of extra data, but a lot more often than not, it'll cause more stress. Hmm. Okay, good to know. Yeah, with, our, really- with our, what we do, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and part of the a big model of this Creighton is for people that are, uh, oh, excuse me, women that are having fertile fertility issues. And when you, we were emailing back and forth, you mentioned, you said something to me and you wanted to talk about how fertility is the root of why medicine has, you didn't like to use this word, but I'm going to say it anyway, sort of demon. Vilification. Vilification, I thought would be a better word. Okay. Vilification of women's physiology. Right. She used demonized and and that was, she told me not to use that word, but this is my podcast and I can say whatever I want. So, but what, what, what do you mean by that? You, you know, calling the physiology of ovulation pathology. Yeah. So I mean, tell me. I don't know if you were, but I asked one of my midwives in midwifery school, were you at, were you taught that ovulation is unhealthy? And she's like, I'm pretty sure I was, I was, I mean, I don't know if you were, but I remember being taught ovulation is associated with ovarian cancer. Were you taught that? I was taught that, yeah, the more the more follicles you form, the more likely when you ovulate that some of that's going to be invaginated and those cells will go inside and that's where the more likely to be triggered for cancer. But again, I was taught a lot of things, Naomi, that 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 I've now um, evolved way past. Um, yeah, the- but we were all taught that. Yeah. I mean, I just think that's important to know that that's the fundamental lesson everyone has learned in healthcare is that ovulation, which... Is there any other physiologic event of men or women that is that we're all taught causes cancer? Is there any other healthy event that we say is actually unhealthy? I wasn't taught that, by the way. Midwives, yeah. Well, that's good. Midwives are not taught this. The, the only one I can <laughs> well, think of. It depends on the school, I think, because my midwife that I work, one of my midwives, I asked her yesterday, preparing She's for the podcast. C- is she a CNM? Um, she a nurse midwife? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. That's why. <laughs> yeah. It's, different, I, it's a different schooling. One's through the medical model and the other one's through a uh, apprenticeship model. And all we learn right. is, is home birth and natural birth. So I think the, the perspective, which I often talk about is, is different um, from the lens from which we're learning from can be different. So, but that's surprising. So Stu, what you, what were you going to say? Yeah, no, I can't think of any other, other bodily function that we think ex- it leads to cancer. I think that, you know, I mean, people say, oh, too much sunlight will lead to skin cancer and this, but that's an exterior force. You're just talking about. It's exterior and it's too much, right? I don't know. If, I don't know if many people say you should live in a, under a rock and never be exposed to the sun. Well, that's, that's, that's kind of unhealthy too. Right. Right. I mean, but technically we're, it's implied that you should be on birth control. That's out of the medicated or unmedicated state that the medicated state of birth control is a sense is de facto healthier than not being on it. That's what that is saying. That statement. Yeah. I'm shocked. And that's what we were taught. And that's what I did for years as a practicing physician. Any woman that came in with menstrual irregularities when she was in her late teens, or early twenties or whatever, the, the, and, and even teenagers, uh, 14, 15 year olds, if they came in, their mothers brought them in and they were having dysmenorrhea, which is painful periods or whatever, we didn't even bother to look at the root cause. We just said, here, you know, you're going to get on on uh, birth control pills. And if they had a little bit of uh, PCOS uh, hair stuff, we put them on aldactone and maybe metformin as well. And that's all we did. 
we treated the symptoms. We did not look at the underlying cause, but that's not what you guys do. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so how do you, how would you manage uh, a, a young woman that comes in with dysfunctional bleeding at age 15 or 17 and, or, you know, really painful periods or oligomenorrhea or, or, or more acne, whether you're thinking maybe they do have elements of polycystic ovarian syndrome um, rather than just prescribing them metformin, aldactone and birth control pills. What, what, what does a, what does an APRO doctor do? Yeah. So we, I mean, ideally would have her start charting her cycles because that gives me a ton of information as to, you know, if she's even trying to ovulate, for example, cycle day three hormone panel to see, you know, do they have actual endocrine issues showing up on the blood work? Um, And then we may even do a hormone profile after ovulation, depending on the symptoms, timing, um, and what we're worried about. Most women at that age would benefit from, if they're having issues uh, with bleeding, irregular cycles, uh, cooperative progesterone support, but you can do it in a cooperative way by doing it, by giving bioidentical progesterone after ovulation. And that can really help with, basically every women's health issue can be helped with progesterone, bioidentical. Um, it's it's anti-cancer, that's, that's the issue. Probably the reason why medicine has said that uh, frequent ovulation causes cancer is is actually that frequent abnormal ovulation, abnormal hormones cause cancer, and that women have abnormal hormones quite frequently in our society. We can that's a whole nother topic, but or they're delaying childbearing, and so they tend to have less progesterone load. We know that high progesterone, less than twenty five, like if you have a term pregnancy less than 25, that's protective for breast cancer. And that's also related to progesterone. So we know progesterone has anti-cancer properties. It has anti-anxiety properties. It will help prevent endometrial cancer for women with PCOS. It helps with inflammation and pain and bleeding for women with endometriosis. So I would say that's that's a really good option um, that I think is healthy, that helps with management of a lot of symptoms and helps with bleeding irregular cycles. So that's one of the most common treatments, but obviously it depends on what they have. Do they have insulin resistance? They have low ferritin. Um, you know, if, you know, um, how is their lifestyle diet? You know, we also can find some other, um, issues going on, you know, in their life. Um, we have to really individualize that workup. Yeah. There was an old paper that I don't know if you even remember, cause it was, it was, I don't know if it was even before my time called the women's health initiative. And they looked yes. at, they, they looked at women getting estrogen versus estrogen progesterone. It and, wasn't progesterone. Oh, it was just, what was it? It's Provera, which is not oh, progesterone. Yes. It, yeah. That's the key. It, it's yeah. It's a yeah. key. Right. Uh, it's not natural to, progesterone. It's synthetic progesterone. Mm-hmm. That's correct. And they, I don't mm-hmm. even remember the results, but I do. I just remember that the take home for me was that, a lot of doctors felt like estrogen causes breast cancer. And my feeling was, is that no, no, all women have estrogen. Very few women percentage get breast cancer. Estrogen cannot be a carcinogen. You know, I think that whatever happened, whatever causes breast cancer is something else that happens in our bodies, a toxin, exposure to something, uh, genetics maybe. And all estrogen does is act as fertilizer 
for breast cancer, for most breast cancers, because they're estrogen receptor positive. Um, so it's, but it's really interesting because I would see a lot of women who were seeing their family practice doctor internist who wanted them on birth control pills because they wanted to lower their overall estrogen rates because they thought it would protect them against breast cancer. Can you make any comment on, on whether that was, there's any logic to that at all? Or was that just sort of brainless thinking? Um, I mean, the, the birth control pill increases the risk of breast cancer. That's, you know, right. So why is that? They, but I they mean, didn't, uh, did all, they know that, that, did they know that back then or they didn't bother looking? They no, just, I'm not sure. Yeah. I would, I don't know when that data was, was discovered, but I think that, well, the Provera was the problem as well for breast cancer risk. Um, so the synthetic progestins, uh, you know, are a problem, um, I think it's unopposed estrogen is what is the proliferator, you know, the gas yes. to, to grow the cancer, you know, the instigating event. I'm not sure uh, what that would be. One plausible que reason would be unopposed estrogen repetitively in the luteal phase, severe luteal phase defects over and over. And we see that more frequent with women with infertility. And so if they have high estrogen and their progesterone plummets, their breast cells change throughout the cycle as well. And this happens in pregnancy. This happens in in the menstrual cycle. And so it's important for that natural rise and fall of estrogen and progesterone to go together and have the right ratios. So if you have unopposed estrogen or estrogen dominance, that's basically the same thing to schools of thought. Um, I think that's that's a problem and that might be one instigator. Um, so again, progesterone's the answer. So so here's a question then. If, if nature has designed a system to, to want you to live as long as possible and create babies and do all the things that you're supposed to do to pass on to the next generation, um, then is, then are we seeing more in the last hundred years? And I don't know if that there's an answer to this, more irregularities in menstrual cycles, more PCOS, more dysfunctional bleeding. And, and are, are we not trying to figure out why that's happening as opposed to just adjusting to it? Because wouldn't it be smart? And again, this is a theme in, in, in current medicine that, that and I can just now add birth control pills to my list for thalidomide and DES and Vioxx and, and all the things that doctors gave without thinking whether or not there was any value to giving these things or what's the downside or what's the long-term effect, something we call stage one thinking. And so um, what do you think is, uh, because I think we're seeing more of these menstrual irregularities and ovatory cycles. I mean, is, is it a health thing because of our diets and all the crappy food we're eating? Uh, do you have any thoughts on that as a, because you've, you've obviously seen this and you're specializing in this and you have a intuitive mind that wants to look beyond the symptoms. And I, I'm just curious because I just think there's so much about disease diseases that have developed in the last 50 to 70 years that never existed before. Right. No, I think there are many contributors to that. So one would be one obvious one is obesity. We're getting more overweight and that's going to innately cause higher estrogen and more health issues, higher inflammation and um, you know, irregular bleeding. But I think a big one that we, and processed foods and decreased activity and higher stress. I definitely think all that is part of it. Um, but one thing that that's that we don't think about is the later childbearing, though. Our bodies were designed to have children younger. 
And so having that high dose progesterone less less than 25 is extremely protective against breast cancer. And breast cancer is on the rise. It's one in affects one in eight women. It is a crisis. It's getting worse. I looked at the data and I did look almost none of them have only progesterone receptors. You know, it's extremely rare to have a progesterone receptor only positive cancer for breast cancer. It's all related to estrogen or, you know, other issues. So, um, you know, what is, I think part of it is just the fact that we're delaying childbearing. Um, you know, that alone is, is going to cause more frequent abnormal cycles. If you have uninterrupted, you know, we were designed to have babies. We were designed to have high dose progesterone. We were designed to breastfeed for a long time. All of those things are protective by nature, technically. So being on birth control, which is in of itself can increase breast cancer. And women need to know that because it's such a common cancer. Um, and they say they only mainly focus on its risk reduction for ovarian cancer, which is around one in 70 women, which is much less frequent. Um, why that reduces risk of ovarian cancer? I think it's because you don't have that extreme change in unhealthy cycles. So I think it's masking unhealthy cycles. So it might help some cancers in that way. Um, but really, they're, they're more rare than the breast cancer, which is the true crisis that we need to be focusing on. And we're not making progress there. Thank you. So um, <clears throat> I have a clarity question for you. So saying that we're delaying childbearing, are you meaning that um, you haven't had any children within that earlier time or that um, you're, you're pregnant later in life? Because if we look at like a natural rhythm without a lot of the medications and stuff that we use in, the, in modern culture, women would just have babies late into life until they stopped, either they died from having so many babies or they were old, right? Or they couldn't, they couldn't cycle anymore. So having babies later is not necessarily a new thing. Maybe starting having babies later that's is what a new means, thing. Right? Yeah, that's so what just, I mean. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, okay, thank cool. you for clarifying. And yeah, yeah. really we're talking about a one term pregnancy less than 25 we're taught this in medical school as well, which is funny because it's contradictory. I believe I, that's where I learned it. Um, one term pregnancy less than 25 reduces risk of breast cancer. So, yeah, and that makes sense to me because that's the natural mm -hmm. function of our body. And if it's not utilized in the way that it's designed, then the body is, you know, if it's an ecosystem, when I talk about this all the time, if it's an ecosystem, then that ecosystem is thrown off. But I, I would love to chime in just for a second that I absolutely believe that a lot of these problems have to do with environmental issues. It has to do with more vaccines, more medications, um, not eating, not eating the way that our ancestors ate. Even if we try to, our soil is depleted. Um, you know, the, the meats that we're eating are processed in a way that is not healthy at all. Um, we, then we have environmental issues, chemicals, um, all of these things are going to contribute to the fact that we are not um, cycling and having all of these dysfunctions. So 1000% uh, yeah. I would tell you. That. Yeah, we're getting yeah, we're getting less nutrients from the processed food. Plus, we're, we have a higher stress level when you have higher stress, you're going to burn through your nutrients as well. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so I wanted to move on to um, restorative reproductive medicine. And what's the, um, how does that relate to NAPRO? And also it's probably something that you're doing a lot of, and I, I, you, on your website, you had a paper 
I think by a guy named Boyle, where they looked at healthy singleton pregnancies after restorative reproductive medicine, after failed IVF. And I, you know, I looked it over and, and, and so can you tell us what, what RRM really means? And also, is it an alternative to $15,000 cycle uh, IVF and who should use it? Who shouldn't use it? How does somebody go about figuring that out? I would love to hear you to tell us, talk yeah. about yeah, I mean, restorative reproductive medicine is just treating the underlying cause of women's health issues. Uh, I think medicine was starting to go down that path before IVF and the birth control pill, but then it got kind of lazy medicine once we had a quick fix. So if we, if and, medicine and, had- And by the way, those things made a lot of money for people. Let's, yeah, let's, let's I mean, be honest. The birth yeah. control pills, billion, billions of dollars. Uh, IVF, billions of dollars. So- yeah, yeah, and the yeah. pills, you know, just slap a new label on it and and then you give it a new marketing link, uh, term and then there's a whole new pill and it's the same thing with a different wrapper on it. So, but, um, so yeah, so medicine, this is just real medicine. It's just what medicine was supposed to be, looking at the endocrine issues and treating the endocrine issues instead of suppressing them um, because we have that, biomarker data, we can work with the body to treat what's going on, for example, or I mean, it's still including Clomid sometimes ovulation medications, um, sometimes injectable medications, if women need it, but we respect and we monitor what the body is actually doing. And then we just support it. And so we monitor cycles, we monitor hormones, we don't want to overstimulate the body. Um, and we will do corrective surgery, if indicated, you know, some women need surgery. Sometimes there's a tubal blockage. Sometimes there's a polyp, endometriosis. There are even surgical options for severe PCOS for those who fail supportive uh, medical therapy, supplements, lifestyle changes. Um, and so it's just, it's really good quality medicine. That's what it is. If you don't want to do IVF, if you don't want to do um, the birth control pill, if you want to understand, number one, get answers to why you're feeling bad, why you're bleeding abnormally, why are your cycles weird, um, why are you not getting pregnant? There are answers. It's just finding the answers. And it's one of those lists, you know, it's PCOS, endometriosis, infection in the line of the uterus, hormone dysfunction, um, blocked tubes. So finding what's going on and treating it will help with health short term, help you feel better. And as a bone, you know, obviously we would love oftentimes to help get a baby out of it and hopefully a healthy pregnancy as well. You know, for the, it does take longer, um, you know, with IVF, it's kind of like three strikes, you're out and you're done. You lost a whole bunch of money and you either have a baby or you're a pregnancy or not. If you do get pregnant, oftentimes you're very likely to be very high risk. So it's not that way. If you put upfront investment in health, Find, you know, getting those nutrients addressed, getting the hormones addressed, finding the infections. For example, IVF, you know, there may be chronic endometritis that's subclinical. So there's an infection that's smoldering in the uterus. That's pretty common. If you just put an embryo in there, you're very likely to miscarry. So, and then let's say if you don't miscarry, you might make it to the second trimester and break your water at 23 weeks. So, you know, Yes, you can put a baby in an unhealthy body, but the body is saying something's wrong when there's infertility. And I compare it to a car whose check engine light is on when their biomarkers that are off or infertility, 
And sometimes we need to look under the hood of a car and see, you know, is there endometriosis, which causes lots of inflammation and issues. So, Stu, I have a question for you. I'm shocked. What is it? <laughs> what is one thing in a woman's pregnancy that she can control? Because so much is out of our control. Uh, her nutrition? That's right. And we are so excited to be partnered with such an amazing company as needed because they have focused on pregnancy, postpartum as being some of the most nutritionally demanding time in a woman's life. And it can be influenced by her nutrition status. So they support women during this time with all kinds of amazing products. Their line just has so many options. So make sure and check them all out. But Stu's going to tell us a little bit about um, their immune support because it's turning fall. And we need that a little bit more right now during this time. Yeah, Needed has an immune support, uh, which is a popular choice right now with all the back to school germs and heading into the winter when we all tend to get sick more frequently. And the people ask sometimes, well, if I'm pregnant, can I take this product? And of course, yes, it was formulated uh, for pregnant mamas in mind. So it's uh, recommended and safe in pregnancy. Support is intended to complement, not replace other products that they offer as well. So it's just one of those things that you add to your, you know, your prenatal vitamins, your probiotic, your maybe your stress support, your sleep and relaxation support. But Bliss, I wanted to talk about something else today. Don't forget the men. That's right. We love the men. Right. So they have a sperm support, uh, men's pre and probiotic. And they say men play a critical role in conception and healthy pregnancies. I, I, I imagine that's true. <laughs> <laughs> they do. <laughs> and the preconception health can significantly impact both fertility outcomes and also the health of their future children. Needed's Men Fertility Plan is a must for couples trying to conceive to support the multiple components of fertility, including sperm health, gut health, optimal nutrient levels, and testosterone levels, which, by the way, are falling worldwide. So you can do this and it works. Why not? I trust Needed's products with my patients because they use scientifically studied ingredients and perform rigorous third-party testing. And unlike other products on the market, Needed designs their products from the ground up using the latest research and insights from men's fertility practitioners. So, you know, we are a woman's podcast mostly, but I don't want those dads to feel excluded. So head over to thisisneeded.com and use code birthinginstincts for 20% off your one-time order. That's right. Thanks, Needed. I have a quick question. I don't know if you can answer it or not, but I just want your theory of endometriosis. Why does it happen? What, yeah, I, I think. And why does it affect fertility? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I definitely know the fertility one, but where it comes from, no one knows. So that's the right answer. Nobody really knows if anyone's confident, then they're wrong. The <laughs> one we're taught in medical school, the theory is probably wrong retrograde menstruation. That there are a lot of ways that that has been likely debunked. Um, most likely, women are born with it. And um, so I don't know. And there's some genetic component. So is there some kind of environmental stressor to the mother or exposure uh, that turns on these genes for the baby in utero. Perhaps it's something like that. And then at the onset of hormones, that's when inflammation and the symptoms arise, usually during the first period, true period. That's when most women with endometriosis, they know something's wrong, you know? So to me, that's, that debunks the, 
retrograde menstruation theory. Um, and how does it cause infertility? Well, it, it's damaging to eggs, even sperm, um, the transport of the embryo through the fallopian tube, as well as implantation. So all aspects of fertility are affected by endometriosis and inflammation, the environment. Is it, is, um, it damaging, by... is, it, is it damaging because of things that it's secreting or hormones or just inflammatory process going on? What, what makes yeah, it? Yeah, there's a whole inflammatory process. Um, it secretes its own hormones, but the body is also trying to fight these implants and clean it up. So it's a mix of, it's similar to an autoimmune disease slash cancer, but it's in the middle. It's neither of those technically. It's its own thing. I want to add, and I what, want to add, is, what do you mean by retrograde menstruation just quickly yeah so another myth that i think we were taught in medical school that i think is kind of like the ovulation myth is that uh endometriosis is caused by the endometrial cells from the lining of the uterus sloughing off and going out through the tubes and getting implanted into the pelvis okay so it's just flowing the menstrual flow just some of it flows out the cervix but some of it flows back out back and then so that way though they say that if you so that is if someone is saying that it means that they really want to give birth control because then or a hysterectomy that's it's basically trying to support the care of hysterectomy birth control as a treatment for endometriosis pregnancy would also be a good treatment for endometriosis too they say that but obviously i mean they say that doctors say that to patients but it's really painful because many of them have issues getting pregnant to say someone, well, you need to do something and your body isn't letting you do it, but that's a treatment, but it won't happen is extremely painful for patients to hear. You know, I'm not suggesting it as a treatment. I'm suggesting that if they get pregnant though, they, their body gets a, a reprieve for a while, right? It definitely, yeah, it can help suppress the symptoms. Absolutely. That high yeah. dose progesterone, the bioidentical progesterone is very high and will help um, with the symptoms well, and breastfeeding, right? One more thing about that. And then I want to read a letter to you from somebody and get your opinion on it. But um, the theory is an interesting theory because I've been reading books on heavy metals, doing a lot of work on heavy metals. And, and uh, one of the theories is that when you get injected with aluminum in a lot of vaccines that children are getting now, um, that body, that stuff never goes out of your body. It's actually either, either um, sequestered in granulomas, tiny little granulomas in your body, or it's just gobbled up by white cells. And hmm. here's the th- when you have endometriosis and you have this little inflammatory process going on every time you're menstruating or your body doesn't like it and it's trying to fight it, what does your body do? It, it tells it to send white cells to that area. And then what are white cells carrying? They're carrying heavy metals. Mm-hmm. And so we, we are almost self-poisoning ourselves. And a lot of chronic diseases like Crohn's disease and others, uh, you know, like endometriosis, probably are related to this. And again, it's a theory, makes a lot of sense to me. Um, and I'm just putting it out there for listeners so that they can hear this and if they want to do a deeper dive into that sort of thing. Um, okay, Bliss, did you have anything uh, else? I just wanted to say I'm working on um, bringing uh, Alex Evangelidi, who's um, a master herbalist and midwife. She's one of my uh, mentors and, and friends. And, and yours. Um uh, about natural fertility. So I think it'll be a great like part two of this conversation of um, I love what you're talking about, Naomi, and this method and how you're looking at the symptoms. And um, this to me also seems like for people who like 
are more advanced and having more challenges. There, there are yes. other, yeah, there are other ways. Cause I feel like women are so anxious these days that I even get women that come to me who are like asking about getting pregnant and they haven't had any issues. They just assume they're going to have a problem. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I think it's good to know that like, this is great for someone who really does need to go even deeper, but there, there's a, a level that we could address first that could have to do with like vaginal steaming, herbology, nutrition, lifestyle changes, which I know you addressed a little bit with the lifestyle changes too. Um, so I think it'll be really cool. I'm just, um, giving the, our listeners a little preview that, um, we'll be talking about natural fertility and another, in another method in a couple of weeks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this is a, just as a post from the women's series, uh, they're, they're, uh, I follow them on Instagram and, uh, I want your thoughts on it. It may not be directly on topic, but since I don't get to have another physician on very often and I, and you are an expert in fertility and fertility surgery, um, it says the amount of women who are told they need IVF due to recurring loss of un or unexplained infertility, autoimmunity, or, or any other chronic health condition is a joke. What these women and couples really need are comprehensive functional lab testing, <laughs> consistent coaching, nutrition and lifestyle interventions, body literacy in the form of understanding their cycles and some tender loving care. For example, if you are someone experiencing reoccurring loss, you need to have the following tested and analyzed before ever going through IVF. You can, I, you know, you can nod with these or shake your head the other way, Naomi, but thyroid antibodies, ANA, anti-nuclear antibody, sperm antibodies. Mm. Okay. So that's not, a, that one's got a negative head shake. I mean, I'll tell you about my experience. Yeah. With that stuff, but sure. I mean, you can I chime in now. Yeah. Chime yeah, in I now. Mean, generally they're correct. You need to figure out what's going on. You know, if you just keep pushing embryos into a system, for example, recurrent loss, I think is one of the worst reasons to do IVF. Because you're, if they can get pregnant, why would you, I mean, that's not, I guess you're, that's another, uh, I think that's uh, another misconception that we're taught in medical school is that most embryos that, that miscarriages are caused by abnormal embryos. And so they go by that theory, but I don't think that's true often with women with recurrent loss. I don't actually, most of the time when you do genetic testing on the parents, they're normal. They're normal. Yeah. Most of the time, I mean, overwhelmingly. So yes, does that happen? Absolutely. And, and, um, but oftentimes it's either progesterone, which is anti-inflammatory or, um, like, so hormonal or autoimmune. Yes, I do agree with that. ANA, I don't necessarily think it needs to, it would help. Um, okay. That, but, yeah. okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. How about sperm antibodies? You ever heard of that? I, mean, I haven't. I don't. Yes, I have, but I haven't okay. seen it clinically how to address that clinically again. Because you, you know, the test. Okay, it's interesting, but what do we do about it? Yeah, good question. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, so I would be I would definitely be open to talking to that person, but um, yes, clinically, I don't know how how helpful that is. Yeah, and you haven't really mentioned working with men. You've specifically been talking about that your practices helping women figure out what's happening with them. But is that part we of We do what work with do? men too. Okay, okay good. Yeah. Good to know. Uh, a vaginal microbiome, pretty important. So we do endometrial cultures. Right. Endometrial cultures. Oh, a endometri little different. Yeah. yeah. And wait, are you looking for things like mycoplasma and uh, yes. chlamydia and those weird intracellular bacteria? Yeah, you're looking for that. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
one I common fi commonly find though is CMV. No one knows that. That's a problem. Cytomegalovirus you commonly find? Yes. What do yeah, you do? Found one do yesterday. You do for, what do you do for that? Uh, acyclovir. Oh, okay. It's an antiviral. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, semen analysis, which we we just kind of mentioned. How about MTHFR? Does that have any role in what you do? Yeah, I mean, most people would say absolutely not. Most people carry MTHFR. Sometimes I consider testing it for women with recurrent loss for this uh, C677T mutation, so a subtype. And then we talk about the very limited data and Lovenox in a blood thinner. So for recurrent loss, we're going into uncharted territory. You know, these women have almost no options. So then we might go into kind of considered experimental. And these women, you know, after risk benefit discussion, um, often want to be more aggressive. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of times doctors just throw up their hands because they don't know what to do. And they put them on Lovenox, they put them on aspirin. Um there's one other thing they put them on too. I can't even remember what it is, but they just, they just, you know, give them the shotgun tr treatment because they're just trying whatever they can. They're desperate to try to help these people. Um, she yeah, then, hopefully, hopefully they do that. A lot of them just say, just try again. Oh, the ones uh, that I've seen. Okay. And then she lists a whole lot of things, which I'm not going to get into because the, the, I've never even heard of some of them. Uh, she says, unfortunately, majority of these are not assessed when seeking standard fertility care. So if you're being, if you are over being told your only route for pregnancy success is within a system that only has a 30% success rate and charges $15,000 to get there, then you need to look elsewhere. Do you agree with most of that? I mean, I agree. We need, yes, yes we need to find answers. You should find it. I mean, and that's 50% of healing is just knowing answers because these women and men and couples blame themselves if they aren't told it's endometriosis it's this infection they're like what am i doing wrong like it is my lifestyle because actually most of these women and couples with infertility have tried everything are trying to do be too perfect um typically that goes with infertility and so no it's not their fault there is something and they need to be told this is what it is and just that alone gives them such uh i don't know you know it just they just feel so much better after that that's really cool. Is there anything else that you'd like to uh, say or tell our listeners? Because we're going to have to wrap up on time. But it's uh, yeah, I, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, one thing I thought of, you know, thinking leading up to this is just, you know, physiologic birth is beautiful and it's important just to think about where did we, how did we get here? I do think it's possible that just starting with not seeing fertility and ovulation and that whole, you know, women's health system is beautiful. Uh, maybe that's where it all started. I don't know. You know, I, you've thought about it a lot more than me, but and was there a paper? Was there a, that a big paper kind of like the breach issue, kind of like the WHI one big study and it's flipped everything upside down. <laughs> Did that happen in women's health for ovulation? I'm not sure. Um, but I would suspect that's the case. And then maybe it led to more, uh, mistrust of of the design. Yeah, well, I'm wearing I'm my sure. I'm wearing my uh, skepticism T-shirt here, <laughs> and, and I would tell you that yeah, uh, a lot of it is just um, uh, selection and confirmation bias and and wa wanting uh, some solution which always makes somebody billions of dollars. Um, that seems to be the one that's adopted and the one where 
no interventions or some a lesser intervention is that those get ignored. Um, and and I think that our audience is waking up to this. I think that pretty much everybody listening knows that a lot of the things that we've been told by um, uh, standardized industrial medicine over the last hundred years has been not only wrong, but sometimes evilly wrong because they knew ahead of time before they did it and they, and they did it anyway. And when somebody is consistently wrong like that, then, then we have to kick ourselves if we continue to believe them. That's all. So I do have um, one more question. Um, you uh, have talked mainly specifically about fertility. Um, are there NAPRO doctors who are actually practicing um, obstetrics um, and yeah. delivery? Yeah. Most so of us do. We mm -hmm. do both because mm -hmm. this root cause approach is not very profitable. We spend a lot of time in the OR to correct everything. And that's a whole nother topic, but it's very meticulous and time consuming to correct everything and be uh we call it pelvioplastic, plastic surgery of the pelvis to make it just beautiful in there. Um, but I work with eight amazing midwives and other uh, OB-GYN providers um, and nurse practitioners. And so we help women conceive and we'll give, we allow for them to have the most beautiful birth in the hospital. And, um, you know, if they're good candidates, if, um, and most of the time, uh, you know, they are um, sometimes with invasive surgeries, we kind of err on the side of caution. Um, but um, we've had many women be able to conceive naturally after infertility and have that beautiful birth too, to close, you know, that's so important for that healing component after infertility to be able to have that birth that they dreamed of for years. Um, and so I have amazing midwives that really make that birth experience beautiful. And we have just the most, I've learned so much from our midwives, we have, um, we offer VBAC, um, which we're very passionate about, um, which is, it's hard to find where we are. So um, it's really important that, that we, we have that. And many women travel to us from far away, which is unfortunate that they have to, um, but we really love our obstetric side. And that's a big part of, of NAPRO is that we not only help them conceive, but we care for them the whole pregnancy. So we do benefit from a healthy pregnancy too. You do want your doctor who's taking care of you to benefit from the long-term like IVF. They just discharge you at 12 weeks and whatever happens, your primary OB has to deal with. But me, I want to see them have a beautiful whole. I mean, I'm sure they would like that, but I actually have to deal with it. You know, like, <laughs> that's important that the doctor sees the outcomes, right? Like I often get to be around or see them postpartum and, and experience this joy with them um, versus, you know, in residencies, IVF, babies would be transferred to a referral hospital and be on bed rest for many weeks. Um, and so it's a very different experience that many of them get to have. Right. Hopefully yeah. a beautiful. Yeah, think, aren't you, aren't you Naomi, aren't you on call right now? I am. <laughs> Me <laughs> too. I work. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, I think this is from, you're at the hospital now, right? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's what <laughs> yeah, I Yeah. We had three babies today already. So. Yeah. So we, we yeah, I appreciate your time, but I appreciate it even more. And I want to thank all the ladies for waiting so that, that you could get this free hour to be with us, <laughs> <laughs> to give you this time. Do you want to tell people how to um, connect with you on uh, what's your social media, what's your website, what's the best things, ways to connect you? And we will put them in the show notes as well. Yeah. Just uh, Napa Fertility Surgeon on Instagram or NaomiWhitaker.com. I okay. put a lot of resources on there to learn more. Okay, great. So nice to meet you. I hope you're very nice to meet you. Today.
are beautiful. And um, maybe we'll get a chance to talk to you about some of those other subjects again down the road. Sure. Well, have a great day. I hope it gets better. And thanks. (laughs) Thanks for your time. You too. So Bliss, we have a not new sponsor for Fit. (laughs) They've been with us for a while now, so we can't call them new anymore. But they do have some exciting new news as BirthFit has its newest member as our friend Lindsay had her baby. So congratulations, Lindsay and family. Yay! Yeah, BirthFit is focused on supporting women throughout the motherhood transition with general strength and conditioning programs for preconception, pregnancy, and the postpartum. Tell us a little bit about their programs. You know what? They cover you for all aspects of feminine care and birth and postpartum. It's really amazing. So the BirthFit Basics is a prenatal program is 30 days, no equipment necessary for any trimester of pregnancy. So you could try that out before you jump in further. And then they have a prenatal training program, which is full strength conditioning that requires minimal equipment like dumbbells, bands, and a box. I had a client the other day who was laying in bed like a good client um, taking my suggestion. She's like, you know, just laying in bed nursing all day. I'm feeling a little sore. You know, any stretches? And I said, you should really try this lying in program that they have. It's great for postpartum. It's 30 days, one video a day, less than 10 minutes that focuses on reconnecting and honoring your body in the immediate postpartum through breathing exercises, visualization, and belly massages. I mean, come on, that sounds amazing. It is amazing. And then, yeah, and then they have um, kind of an intermediate birth fit basics, which requires no um, equipment. So that focuses on foundational breath work and movements to reestablish a solid foundation of core and pelvic floor stability before you go back to any other fitness classes. But they also have a more extensive postpartum program, which is 12 weeks focused on building a base level of general fitness through simple lifts, tempo work, and of course, breath work. Yeah, the birth community is where you want to be if you're trying to conceive or know you want to be in the next one to three years. This is a monthly membership program by Women for Women that focuses on general strength and conditioning with respect around one's menstrual cycle. So go to birthfit.com and use the code instincts1, that's the number one, to get a discount on the basics prenatal program or go to birthfit.com, use the code instincts2 to get a discount on the basics postpartum program. We love BirthFit. It's OB and midwife approved. Absolutely. And go check out Lindsay. I mean, she looks great. And she did her own fitness program throughout her whole pregnancy and had an amazing birth. So check it out. Wow, that was really interesting for me. Um, I love the fact that I got to speak to another doctor and learn stuff that I really didn't understand. And somebody who sees birth and pregnancy and fertility and the menstrual cycle as a normal function of the body. And when it's awry, not to just put a Band-Aid on it, but to try to find the root cause of that and fix it. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, my my mouth was literally dropped open when she was talking about that you guys learned that ovulation is considered. A, 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 yeah, I mean, gosh, right? That's just that just shows so much in the perspective and how things just unfold from there. So, um, I thought she was great. I'm so glad that that is available for people, and um, I I really appreciate you bringing her on. You know, it would be surprising. You know, I, I've mentioned many times on the podcast that. 
ACOG says that pregnancy itself is a high-risk condition. Now they're probably going to say ovulation itself is a high-risk condition. <laughs> <laughs> but we have a pill that can help you. Um, anyway, don't 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 get me started. So All thank right. you so much for listening. Check out our Patreon additional content today. It's going to definitely um, be an emotional, interesting one, I believe. Um, and I love you, Stu. And thank you to all of our fellow travelers. Um, we hope that you enjoyed this content. Please share. And if you have time, review us on your favorite podcast app because it helps other people find us. Check your spam box. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Birthing Instincts podcast. We know that we all lead busy lives, so we are extremely grateful that you give us an hour of your time each week. If you enjoyed this episode, please share. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast for the latest updates and reviews. To help others join us, you can find Dr. Stu at Birthing Instincts and Bliss at Birthing Bliss Midwifery on Instagram. 